people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were, who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house built on the foundation that the apostles and the, of the prophets and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself we are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the lord through him you gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where god lives by his spirit amen Good morning, church. God is good. And all the time? Amen. Trying to get this all set up. All right. I think that mic turned off. There we go. So good to be here. I want to let you know if you're visiting with us today, we're so thankful that you're here. Uh, I hope you uh, understand you're our honored guest and uh, can stay around afterwards for potluck and fellowship with us. Um, And really do what uh, the body of Christ is designed to do when we all come together, which is experience our God, worship our God, uh, be before Him and, uh, and love Him. I, I know I did uh, this morning uh, in worship. Man, great job leading us. And isn't God good? Oh, He's so good, right? He's just, oh, sometimes you just, I, I don't even want to preach, just want to sing the whole time, which would be okay for you guys, right? Yeah, I understand. <laughs> um, but we got to do it every once in a while. So uh, the screen behind us here, of course, uh, is a reminder of our theme in 2019. Uh, we are attempting to recapture momentum. And we're doing it with, in three ways. By rediscovering or discovering our, um, our kingdom concept. Number two, by uh, developing a way to make disciples. And number three, by uh, deepening our spiritual rhythms. Essentially making sure that what we do um, supports where we're going. Uh, and we, we believe that if this is the case, we'll be able to approach 2020 um, with 2020. Approach 2020 with a good idea of who we are before God. Um, and who we are in the world, and specifically who we are here in Amherst, right? Um, learning how to glorify God and make disciples. Um, and thankfully, we don't have to do it alone. It's one of the things I love about, about this process is uh, we don't do this alone. We, we have the Holy Spirit guiding us from within. We have the Word of God objectively informing us from without. We have leadership to come alongside us. And we have a family here that gets to do it all together. And, of course, we also have an example. Uh, Paul wrote the Ephesian letter, as we said a couple of weeks ago, to help this this early small church, group of church plants in Ephesus, to discover their kingdom concept. They um, are on the verge, or um, quite 
well, it could be very easy for them to just fall back into uh, mediocrity. It'd be really easy for them to kind of disband, to be consumed by the culture. So many things that they're facing, a, a culture that, that is consuming. Uh, they're, they're facing, of course, their, their apostle that began them or is, is in prison. And, of course, they have to try to be church with Jew and Gentile alike. And so they're doing church, as it were, for the first time with, with everybody invited. Uh, believe it or not, throughout history, that has caused a lot of conflict. And it even causes conflict here in Ephesus. And so Paul says, let me give you this kingdom concept. Let me help you develop it. And so uh, we took a look uh, the last time we were together at uh, Paul and how he praised God's purpose. And one of the things we saw there, of course, was that the purpose of the church is not something that we get to uh, discover. The purpose of God's church has been discovered for us. It's been planted there for us. God is bringing everything together. He is reconciling or reunifying everything under Christ. This is what Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 in his very first prayer that he, uh, that he really leads out and, and discovers for us. And what we find from that um, is inspiration. Because that's what pur- purpose does. Purpose gives us the why. Right? Um, it's been said that purpose is the why we start the journey. Mission is the road we take to, uh, to be on the journey. And vision is a picture of the destination. Right? Each of those working together in some fashion to bring momentum to us, to bring energy to us. The why gives us inspiration. Why do we do anything as a church? Because we want to glorify God and make disciples. Because we're bringing all things together in, under Christ. We're living out God's rule and reign, His loving rule and reign, in harmonious relationship with God, each other, and the world. That should inspire us to, to join God in this beautiful uh, restoration work that He's a part of. But what does it look like? What does it look like in the here and the now? What does it look like contextually? Right? What is the vision? Vision, as I said a moment ago, is, a, is an interesting thing. Vision is an aspirational self-image guiding you to the future. Uh, That's your first blank in your notes, by the way. Vision is an aspirational self-image guiding you to the future. Uh, Essentially, we kind of see this. We see this depicted in movies sometimes. Um, Have you guys ever seen Captain America, right? He, He walks up to the soldier and he sees this reflection in it. You guys remember that piece? Very, very powerful for this guy. He sees a, a, a picture of where he wants to be. Um, perhaps it's the young lady who, who looks at the White House and says, one day I'm getting there. That's my destination, right? Maybe it's, uh, you know, it could be a number of different things, but it's visualizing the future. And, and it has this inspirational dynamic. It's aspirational. It draws us forward, right? If purpose is the why and the inspiration that pushes us, then vision Vision is sort of the destination that pulls us along. It gives us insights. It gives us focus. It gives us a place to be. It gives us a mirror to look in to see if we have become what God wants us to become. Vision is so important. And it's not just an individual thing. It can actually be a corporate thing. Um, This is a quote from a book I'm reading right now. Um, if you follow me on Facebook, of course, you, uh, you kind of do some of my studying with me. I, I love to quote and put things on the Facebook as I study, uh, especially if it's not, um, well, including scripture, but also other books I'm reading. And right now I'm reading this book called The Half-Life of Deindustrialization. 
And basically, it's a story of the Northeast. Um, I'm from California, by and large. That's where my narrative has been. And so when you come into the Northeast, you begin, as, at least as a, as a preacher, someone who's trying to do ministry in an area, you begin to try to ask questions like, what's the narrative here? What, what's going on here? How, how do we get to where we're at? You know? um, when you drive into South Lorraine and you see this massive steel mill and no one in it, and you see this beautiful city with very few people in it, and you see all these under-resourced areas, you wonder, what happened, right? Um, well, this, uh, this author, who Joel will remind us is from the University of Michigan, um, writes and tells the story of the, basically what's known as the Rust Belt. I know it's not a pleasant term, but it's a pretty apt description um, about how people think and how people experience life now that the working class is struggling to work. Um, she describes some of the personalities and stories. In this case, she speaks um, fondly in a lovingly way of a man by the name of Digger. Digger and his family uh, again go to Florida, she says, all wearing items that mark them as from Detroit. A tiger's cap, a stroll's towel, I have no idea who that is. Um, T-shirts from Sterling Plant, what's that? That's good. That's good? Okay. <laughs> a t-shirt from Sterling Plant, home of the axle. From Digger, this is a source of pride, a way of proclaiming their identity. You want everyone to know, a Detroit family, that we do real work. See, I, I, I like that story. I like this description because it reminds us that one's self-image is not always just an individual thing. It can be a corporate vision of self, and it, and it pays dividends. Right? This, this man doesn't want the world just to see him as Digger. He wants them to see him as a man who knows how to do good work. Uh, uh, he wants to see people to understand that Detroit, the city, is a place where hard work gets done. Right? And so vision is not just this individual thing. One day I'm going to grow up to be a soldier. One day she's going to grow up to be the president or, or along those lines. It's, it's a corporate vision as well. And you say, well, Matt, well, why, why is this important that we see that sometimes even larger groups have an, an identity? Because it helps us understand um, Luke in Acts chapter 19, verse 33-37. You remember the story. This is Luke's recounting of how the gospel just took off in Asia Minor. Uh, by the way, they had their own sort of form of deindustrialization. It wasn't the steel factory. It was the silver factory. And uh, the gospel was being proclaimed so extensively that it began to cut out uh, and cut into the dividends from the silversmiths who would create idols. Um, a man by the name of Alexander or Demetrius, the silversmith, uh, causes a bunch of chaos, brings people into um, a theater, and they have this, this basic powwow for, for, uh, for the goddess uh, for a couple hours until the city clerk shows up. This is the story. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. Uh, he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is, I can't even read that. Great is Artemis, I should know this, of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd, and they said, 
follow, uh, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Now, did you catch, did you catch something important there? That there's a group identity, self-identity there. The clerk shows up and says, hey, quiet down, guys. The whole world knows Detroit is hardworking, right? He says, don't you know the whole world knows that Ephesus is the guardian. If you look into the word guardian, it's actually temple, people who serve at the temple. The whole city, the whole area saw themselves as people in the temple of Artemis. It was a self-image. It was a vision. And interestingly enough, the town clerk used it as a vision is used. Don't, don't be bothered by this Christian message. Don't you know this is indisputable? You know who you are. The guardians of the galaxy. I just had to say that once, right? The guardians of the temple of Artemis. Vision is incredibly powerful. Self-image is incredibly powerful. Um, this is the second blank in your notes. Uh, Ephesus' self-image is of guardians of this temple. This is why Paul says what he does. Consequently, as we read a moment ago, speaking to the church in Ephesus, who came from being guardians of Artemis. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God. You are also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and raises to become a what? A holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, $50,000 question here. You think that was an accident? Right? This is a group of people who saw themselves at one point as everyone belonging, as guardians, temple personnel of Artemis. And now Paul is telling them, no more. You are now the guardians of the temple of God. You are now a temple of God where he dwells by the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful image. Um, these are some of the notes, right? Vision is the aspirational self-image guiding you to the future. Number two, Ephesus' self-image was that of a guardian of the temple of the great Artemis. And Paul casts a vision for the church at Ephesus. They are to be a people, a family, and ultimately convening or, or, or coming to this climax, they are to be ultimately a temple. The church's aspirational self-image in Ephesus is that of a temple. Now, that's really significant for a number of reasons. Now, when we started our series and we looked at purpose, we said, as I said just a moment ago, purpose has been set. No one gets to fiddle with the purpose of the church. No one gets to redefine it. No one gets to go into Scripture and say, ah, what should be the purpose of the church? God says, no, the church's purpose is to glorify God and make disciples, to bring it all together, right, under Christ. That has been set. That is our purpose. But 
when it comes to what it looks like to fulfill that purpose in a given context, there is great bandwidth. Great bandwidth. Um, Contextually, and that's the first point, temples are the way people experience God. Think about it this way. We're so used to reading Scripture, understanding what temples mean, we fail to realize how contextual this is. Um, I am 100% convinced that if people in antiquity understood that they experienced God at the top of mountains, Paul would have said, okay, you guys are God's mountain in this place. Had it been in that culture that people experience God uh, by going to a sacred lake or a sacred island in the middle of a giant lake, right? Um, what Kelly's Island or whatever, right? They have their own little sacred island that you go out there to experience God. Paul would have said, and you are God's sacred island in the midst of the lake. I am absolutely convinced if there was a culture that worshipped so many gods that they couldn't even keep track of them, Paul might get up one day and say, Oh, and that unknown God I am declaring to you. Oh, wait a second. He did. How they are to see themselves is a contextual dynamic. Why would he do it? Because that's how everyone understood they experienced God. Why would, why would God come in and then give them something completely different to understand how they have relationship with God? He contextualizes everything. The Bible is filled with God contextualizing himself among men. Do you realize that the, all the forms of El Shaddai and El Elam and all those terms in the Old Testament, um, they were connected to a Canaanite name uh, of deity called El. And so God doesn't show up and say, here's the magic words that you've never heard before. He contextualizes who he is in the culture and the language of the day. You've heard of El, I am El Shaddai. You've heard of El, I am El Alam. He, he contextualizes himself. And we've, we, we've missed this by and large because we don't come to the text understanding uh, this is a contextual um, letter. We, we say and we say, this is what's true for all time and all places. It has to be just like this. Paul's talking about a temple, and so we talk about a temple. Well, is that the best language for our culture? Is that how it communicates to us today? Interesting. When we get to things where Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. All of a sudden, it's really easy to get the contextual Difference. Oh, he's not talking about us getting slaves and masters. <laughs> but you see, there's a, there's a contextual hermeneutical difference there that takes place. See, we don't duplicate the first century church. We learn from it. The principles. We bow to the Lord of the first century church. But we don't go around duplicating everything they do. What we do is we follow Paul's advice. And we try to determine how do people best experience God today. And we learn to lean into that and create vision. Purpose never changes. But what it looks like to be successful in the first century and what it looks like to be successful in the 21st century is going to look a lot different. And that's the sort of vision that pulls us in the direction.
Vision can be a powerful thing. In fact, let's look at two things that this vision for them uh, indicates. The message that we can take even, to our de- even into our lives today. Contextually, temples are a way people experience God. Guides, a vision rather, guides them into the future by forming a close, not an end, <laughs> a close community. Uh, actually, before that, I put intimate and intimate, but I decided to use the word close because uh, do you realize that when you say intimate, sometimes guys just go, whoop, turn off, and you're like, oh, dude, you're talking about way too soft of stuff here, right? So we're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about close community. And he does this in a powerful way. He starts out by saying and describing us as a people, right? All of us are, are most of us in here, I would assume, are Americans, right? Um, so you have that in common with everyone in America who's an American. But how many of you know everyone in America? Right? We don't. But there is that common bond. Uh, he starts off by saying, hey, there's a people. The next thing he says is you're a family. Now, we have everything in common with everyone in America if we're Americans, but we, in your family, everyone's supposed to know you, right? <laughs> and you're supposed to know everyone else. There, see, there's, there's a, a moving closer of intimacy in these, in these images here. It starts off as a people. It gets closer in the family. And it gets even more closer because he moves from the family imagery into the very stones. You guys are the very stones that fit together that build the temple of God. Now, I'm not a master mason. I don't know how to do bricks and stones. But I'm willing to bet that if these bricks were loose, it wouldn't be a good thing, right? Uh, Air would get out. Cool air would get in. may fall over. Be an issue. Stones are built to get real close together, to be one wall. They, they, they form something greater than the sum of their parts. Right? And this is, this is what Paul is doing at this point. Because remember, he's talking about also this Jew and Gentile uh, unity that's coming place. And he's saying it all comes together under Christ. And then he has this exalted uh, picture in chapter 2. And he says, now we all get closer and closer and closer and closer. That's the way and the reason that at the end of the last three chapters of Ephesians, he's going to unpack what the wall is supposed to look like, what the family looks like, what these people look like together. But he does something else. He also reminds us that we're not just a temple. We're filled, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's a good thing. Amen. That's a very good thing. I'm so, you know, uh, Kirk had mentioned something earlier in his Bible class, and, and I can echo the sentiment. Then different churches, different places, different times, focus on different things. And uh, for, for a long time, <clears throat> a lot of churches of Christ had, had, were a little, a little intimidated by talking about the Holy Spirit because it just felt too charismatic, felt too supernatural. And, uh, and we really wanted to focus on the written word and not talk too much about the Holy Spirit. And yet when you read the written word, the written word is always talking about the Holy Spirit. And it's everywhere. Um, and it's, it's good. Without him, you're lost. With him, we are empowered to be everything God has called us to be, both individually and corporately as a body of Christ. 
And so vision is such a powerful thing. And when we go through the vision process, we've already said the purpose of the church, right, is to bring it all together in the Christ. The vision process will be finding out what it means for the church here in New Beginnings to, to be successful at that in Amherst. For Amherst, right? If Paul was here, would he choose a temple? Would he say, hey, we're a temple? I don't know. At this committee that we're going to get together, we're going to go through and ask questions. And we're going to do our best with the Holy Spirit and with the leadership of the church to figure out what it is that it looks like to be successful here. Right? Um, it, whatever it is, it'll be contextual. Whatever it is, it's going to draw us together closer and closer. Whatever it is, it'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit. But like I said in the series, I, I wanted to do more than just lay out sort of the process that we're going to try to take when we go through this collectively as a church. I also want to make sure that we end um, talking, talking about how important these principles are in our individual lives. And believe it or not, having a good, positive self-image is important. Amen? Uh, amen? Amen. Someone who struggles with self-image is going to struggle. Young ladies who are going to struggle with self-image are going to allow someone else to dictate that for them. Young men who struggle with self-image are going to let someone else dictate that for them. Self-image is very important. Um, rather than talk about this, let me show you what, how important self-image is. And also, kind of tipping my hand to further things of what the church should be like. Let me show you what, what most people wouldn't call a church. How they acted like church to help a young man with a self-image. Hopefully the video uh, volume is up. My alma mater, Gonzaga University, called me and said, uh, I have a big talk on Tuesday night with a thousand people. And so I, you know, uh, I said, sure. And they said, could you bring two homies with you? And I always pick homies who have never filmed before, just for the thrill of seeing gang members panicked in the sky. I've never picked anybody more terrified of flying than this guy, Martin. He was just absolutely petrified. In fact, he was hyperventilating. <laughs> and we hadn't even boarded the plane yet. And then our flight crew arrives, and I see two flight attendants, females, and they both have very large cups of Starbucks coffee, and they're schlepping up on the front steps. And Mario goes, when are we going to board the plane? I said, as soon as they sober up the pilots. <laughs> I should tell you that Mario, in our 30 year history at one point, is the most tattooed arms are all sleeved out, neck blackened from the name of his gang, head shaved, covered in tattoos, forehead, cheeks, chin, eyelids that say the end, so that when he's lying in his coffin, there's no doubt. <laughs> and so I never been in public with him, and we're walking, and people are like this, and mothers are clutching their kids more closely, I'm thinking, wow, isn't that interesting, because if you were to go to Homeboy on Monday and ask anybody there who's kindest, most gentle soul who works there, they won't say me, they'll say Mario. He sells baked goods at the counter at our cafe. He's proof that only the soul that 
ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of changing the world. So the nighttime talk comes and it's a thousand people and I invite them up to share their stories in front of all these people for five minutes each. They were terrified that they did a good job. And honestly, God, if their stories had been flames, you'd have to keep your distance, otherwise you'd get scorched. I invite them up for Q&A and, and I said, yes, ma'am, and a woman stands and she says, yeah, I got a question, it's for Mario. Question on the gate. Marty steps up to the microphone. He's a tall, drink of water, skinny, and clutching the microphone, and he's terrified. Yes. And she said, When you say you're a father and you have a son and a daughter who are about to enter their teenage years, what advice do you give them? What wisdom do you impart to them? And Marty clutches his microphone, and he's just terrified, and he's trembling. Hernia trying to come up with whatever the hell he's going to say. When finally he works out, I just. And he stops. And he retreats back to his microphone, clutching, terrified, retreat. But he wants to get this whole sentence out. I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's silence until the woman who asked the question stands, and now it's her turn to cry, and she says, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are loving, you are kind, you are gentle, you are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And a thousand total perfect strangers stand, and they will not stop clapping. All Marty can do is hold his face in his hands so overwhelmed with the emotion that this room full of people, strangers, had returned him to himself, and they were returned to themselves. And I think you go from here to stand with the demonize so that the demonizing will stop. And you stand with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. Stand with those whose dignity has been denied, and you stand with those whose burdens are more than they can bear, and you stand with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless, make those voices heard. Self-image is a big deal, right? That's what church should look like. A thousand people saying, you are a child of God. You are blessed. You are blessed. Standing with people who can't stand for themselves. Oh, everyone needs healthy self-image. Amen? Let's do our part as a church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're about to sing a song. Get right, church, and let's go home. I think. <laughs> Father, I, uh, would you make that true? Would you make that true? Would you turn any thoughts that we had this morning of, of taking another person down a level? Would you take any 
inclinations we might have of setting them straight. And you would replace them with you are loved. We accept you. (laughs) I'm just as broken as you are. Father, that's what we need. We don't need we don't need more people telling us all the things that are wrong in our life. We have your spirit to convict us of that. We need you to tell us we're loved. That's how that temple changes lives. That's how this place will change lives. Let's get right, church. Amen.